Hello, all you wanderers out there. I'm David Pearl, and welcome to what I like to think of as the season finale to our first series of Wonderful. If you've been listening to the previous episodes, and by the way, if you have, thank you very much, you'll know that this is a podcast that's designed to be walked to and to provide you with some inspiration on the go. You'll know that every week, We invite a great guest to join us, somebody with a refreshing take on life and its various twists and turns. What you don't know is that every week, my producer Andrew and I say hello, Andrew. Hi, everyone. That was Andrew. We wish we'd been able to share more of the guest. We've had to leave all sorts of lovely stuff on the cutting room floor. However, now, thanks to some podcast wizardry from Andrew, we've scooped up some of that gold so you can take a wander now through bits of conversation that we missed first time. As ever, you can listen to this podcast prone on your sofa or noodling around your home, but I think you'll get the most inspiration if you boot up and join me out there on the street. I'm just looking out of my window now and and if you are coming out, I suggest you wear something waterproof or bring an umbrella because it's, it's looking rainy. At least it is where I am. Ah, so welcome out to the street. In my case, the slightly rainy street. That sound you can hear is the sound of raindrops on my Street Wisdom branded umbrella. But I'm not going to be turned back from a good wander by, by, by a bit of rain. Just remember, you know, weather is just a way of reminding you that cities are natural places too. So bring it on. So I thought we'd start this omnibus edition by looking back at our first ever interviewee, the gloriously talented and wonderfully funny Pippa Evans. Yay, Pippa Evans. If you listen to the BBC, you'll have heard Pippa, I'm sure, on shows like, I'm sorry I haven't a clue and just a minute. And one thing she's known for is improvising these brilliantly funny songs. So, while we were warming up for the interview, I thought I'd see if I could tempt her into singing by singing a bit myself. I have have two little songs that I sing. When someone says sing, I will quickly sing. I'll sing you you the first line of one of my Get Out of Trouble cards, which is a song about... It's morning, the sun's come up. And I do this, I go. L'alba se parra dalla luce e l'ombra E la mia volontà dal mio desire Did she take the bait? Did she sing? Listen, this is a season finale. We're going to have some suspense, right? A bit of drama. So keep listening and you'll find out. So when I set up Street Wisdom, one of the things that really interested me about the street was not just that it is the sort of the space between various tasks. You know, you go, you're at home, then you go through the street to work, and then you go through the street to the shops. It's also a space between our various identities. There's the home you, and then there's the work you. But in between, you're in the street, and really no one knows who you are, and you can be whoever you are. And it's something I was discussing with Pippa Evans, who as a performer knows really well the difference between sort of being on stage and being backstage, where the audience can't see you. And she was very revealing, I thought, about 
the sort of insecurities that lie behind the mask of even a really confident performer like her. And she's got a really interesting take on, you know, the fact you don't leave these insecurities behind, you take them with you. Here's what she had to say. Oh, where to start? I don't know where I want to start. I want to start with the following, which made me both laugh from your book, which made me both laugh and sort of so, it was so poignant. Um, I want to say something that you said you want people to say to you. So we're saying it to you. This is the wonderful podcast, welcoming Pippa Evans into our, into our wonderful embrace with the words, oh, is that you, Pippa Evans? We've all been waiting for you. Come on in. And then I would go in and everyone would cheer. Pippa is here. Pippa is here. Play your violin, Pippa. Play. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Miss Levison. Oh, it was this, oh. A, a poor little Pips didn't know how to knock on a door. There was these group violin lessons at school in this sort of music club to make music more accessible. Everyone would learn groups. Um, and, but you'd go and you'd knock, you have to go and knock on the door and you'd have to go in a room and say hello I'm here to learn this (laughs) which doesn't sound that hard but it made me um, but I got there and they sent me to this room and aged what Pippa aged what I can't remember was it eight eight nine that's young that's young it's very young and uh, so and they said just down the road just down the hall that that classroom Miss Levison, I didn't know who Miss Levison was. The classrooms were had all different names to what I was used to. Uh, and and so I just stood outside the door for the whole of the class, uh, too scared to, to just push it open and say, excuse me, are you Miss Levison? And yeah, I think I do think, because you're not the first person to quote that bit from the book at me, actually, to be honest. But yeah, I think you're right. It's the universal feeling of I'm too nervous to open the door because I'm too nervous of what might happen when I open it so I'm just going to stand outside the door and watch everybody else having their fun or not even watching because the door's closed so here just hearing the sound it's like that sad that 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 thing they use in films where if you're in the circus and the circus music's loud you're having fun but if you're outside the town hearing the circus music you're alone um yeah so I don't, I don't think that's Open the doors, guys. That's that's what the message is, you know. How can we yeah, find the strength to open the door? Is eight-year-old Pippa still somewhere in there? Do you, you know, are there moments where you're thinking, oh, okay, I've got oh, to knock God. on the door? Yeah, of course, of course. And I think that's important. I think that's important part of the book is I share quite a lot of <laughs> moments. <laughs> to be to be clear, it's like I'm not. Fi- and in fact, I say at the end, we are not finished. It's never finished. So. So to take that pressure off, because I do feel like um, well, it took me a long time to realise, oh, there's no end point. There's not a point where you go, cook, I'm cooked, I'm done. Yeah. Um, actually, you become better at being present with yourself in this moment. So that's um, that's really important. However, you carry with you all the pippa, you know, I've got all the pippers with me from over the years who who occasionally pop up you know so 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 I, for example I've got a gig tonight I haven't done a gig for I don't know six months it's a bit of me it's like don't just wait tell, just tell them you're ill just tell them you're ill because you, you can't do it there's nobody can do this gig tonight you're going to embarrass yourself um but I recognize that voice as the voice of fear and having died so many times on stage because that's how you learn uh I I, I recognize also that if I do the gig tonight and I die the world does not end, and at least I'll have a funny story to tell everyone. 
You've got this lovely name for it. The e- what's it called? The eagle. The eagle of despair. Yes. Oh, and um, and he so so the eagle of despair is a really for me a great metaphor for this person, this personification or animal an, animal. How do you call it? Animalization. Animatropic. We'll go with that. We'll anima, go with that. Animalization. Let's do that. That's quite. That sounds very professional. Um, so, <laughs> Eagle of Despair sits there and judges everything I do. And I talked to my therapist about the Eagle of Despair because I had this whole stand-up comedy routine, which is half of that chapter um, about this eagle that kept talking to me. And she said, "Well, maybe actually the eagle was there to look after you, and mm. unfortunately, you started to listen to that eagle too much." And now it's time to tell the eagle, hey, hey, you can pipe down occasionally. <laughs> and I think that's really important because, I, again, I feel like there's this sense that you're going to get to a point where you have never have any negative thoughts and you're mm. always in peace and you're floating on a cloud the whole time. And it's just not true. It's just learning to manage all of this, the voices and, and joy and laughter and sadness and anxiety. It's all, and it's all there, but but it doesn't need to be controlling our every move you know so we we have awareness mm. rather than um rather than yeah being completely led by each emotion which of course mm. is exhausting which is why mm. anxiety is one of the most exhausting things in the world because you're constantly flipping between emotional states the reason i love improvisation is also because it's a massive contradiction of everything that we're taught so you as a group are going to attempt to put on a thing. You're going to, in the moment, create something, whether that's, uh, in your case, an opera, or in my case, a musical uh, mm. with Showstopper, or it's just a sketch show, whatever it is. Um, but in that moment, we create a show. And within that show, there will be moments where you go, why did you say that? Or, uh, oh, my God, that's so brilliant. Or, uh, I don't know what to do now. Uh, and But so really, all what we're learning as we continue to push ourselves through this process is how to hold all of that and still create together, which is why I really believe improvisation is the solution to everything. Um, as in, I wish we all learned to improvise because it gives you the experience of putting together, creating in the moment with what is happening with people you don't necessarily agree with all the time. Uh, so, but however, it only works if there's a sense of respect. So yeah. as so as humans, we have to be there in the moment with each other. We have to notice that these are our friends, our colleagues, our sidekicks, our nemesis, our uh, mentor figures, our... Um, gatekeepers you know all of these people are there uh, and we have to create together in the moment so so that's why I'm quite keen that everybody learns to improvise so I love Pippa's whole attitude on the confidence thing that it's not about striding through the world without fear but it's, it's more about sort of feeling your way forward uh, and taking all your emotions with you but I know what you're wondering when is she going to sing is she going to sing? Will she? Won't she? Everyone calm down. The key to improv, remember, is being okay with not knowing what comes next. What is around the next corner in the road? And not knowing is something I spoke to my next guest about. My friend, the poet Philip Cowell. I don't know if you've noticed, but one of the most famous lines of poetry in the English language has the word wander in it. I wandered lonely as a cloud. William Wordsworth. I wish I'd realised that 
before I finished the, writing the book, wonderful, but it only occurred to me afterwards. But it's something that came up in our conversation uh, when Philip and I were talking about poetry. You know, what is it about not knowing, about, about floating, in a way, about wandering into the unknown that is so exciting and so important for poets and for poetry? But the poets are really good at this. In fact, Keats even named it, right? He named not knowing negative capability. Um, there's that great quote. He's writing a letter to Coleridge, who's sort of all, you know, he's all big on sort of knowledge and categorizing things. And, and Keats is like, whoa, 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 whoa. You know, can we be capable? Here's the quote, capable of being in uncertainties, mysteries, doubts. And this is a lovely line, without irritable reaching after fact or reason. Notice the irritable in there, which I had not seen before when um, I looked up this quote for our, our chat. So capable. So he's talking about, you know, basically the poet, but I sort of anyone, um, you know, ca- can the poet, you through the poetry, increase our, our ability to be in uncertainty, mystery and doubt? Great. But without irritable reaching after fact or reason. And that irritable is really interesting. Is there something irritable or irritating about knowing or about about um, reaching after fact or start a reason? Or is there something irritable about just being sure about something? There's something a little bit annoying, isn't there? Can we bring a bit of not knowing to that knowing to to soften it? Um, the poets have got it down right. They they, they know how to do it. Um, but I think you do need this. You do need the the knowledge too. I don't think it's just. I'm not ditching knowledge. Do you know what I mean? I'm not ditching Coleridge. Can you be more Coleridge and be more Keats? <laughs> That's going on my T-shirt. That's fantastic. Be more, be more Coleridge. Be more Keats. Yeah, yeah. It's beautiful. So, so not knowing is not ignorance, but it's suspending that certainty. Use that word, or he used that word, certainty. And I, mm. I, I wonder whether. I also wonder whether now we're going through a period because we've all been to greater or lesser extent, sort of unpicked and humbled by a world event. I wonder if certainty will have quite the currency it had in some ways and whether actually, you know, in the work I do with leaders and so on is actually being, being okay with being less certain but exploring more is possibly, is possibly the best idea. Um, has Philip always been like this, by the way? If we, I mean, do you, thinking mm-hmm. back to the young Philip, were there times when he was mm-hmm. you know, super interested in being certain? Or, you know, is, it, is this something you've, this has been you since birth, do you think? Wow, that's a really nice question. I remember wanting to be a, both a scientist and a lawyer when I was growing up. You know, these are quite sure kinds of things, although I just want to, Go back to the scientist very briefly, and I will answer the question. Um, you know, the scientist, of course, like the poet, is also actually, you know, an expert in not knowing. Um, and the story there, which I really want to share, is um, I had the most incredible opportunity to go to CERN in Switzerland, for, uh, probably five or six years ago now, possibly even longer. And uh, I got to have lunch with a, an astrophysicist who was working on the Higgs boson. And, you know, after all those years of trying to find the Higgs boson, all that money, all that research, I mean, we're talking, you know, this is this is an incredibly big project. We can't even describe the bigness in that, in that sense. Um, she said the most exciting thing for her was that they might not find it. They might, it might, you know, they, they, it might not work. 
love that at the at the sort of essence of the scientist the essence of their approach is this sort of it might you know we might not we might not know as you say when you meet scientists there is this not only a kind of um a tolerance for wonder and mystery but also a really impish desire to discover they were wrong it's well it just seems to me um that's exactly right and that you know science isn't a body of knowledge and but it is a rigorous methodology um you know and a really robust one but it's a one that's completely premised on on not on on being quite excited about not knowing <laughs> Philip's a lovely man. And um, his career has been, like many of ours, not straightforward. Um, isn't that funny how, how at school there are so many positive words for straightforward and so many negative words for the opposite? So you've got straight, forthright, right. I mean, the word right even means, comes from the Latin rectus, meaning straight. And on the other side, you've got things like errant, aberrant. Even the word error means to to go wrong, to wander. I'm not sure it's like that. I think that we're all wanderers in our careers, wanderers by nature and wanderers at heart. Philip certainly is. Um, he probably described himself as errant, as non-linear, as aleatoric or even squiggly. Someone who knows a lot about squiggliness is my next guest, Sarah Ellis. She's the co-founder and co-presenter of the very successful podcast, Squiggly Careers. And I was very curious about how somebody who describes herself as an introvert managed to lead others in really big corporate roles in places like Sainsbury's and Barclays. Here's what she had to say. I think with introversion and extroversion, actually the definitions have changed over time, which is really interesting, like actually over kind of hundreds of years. But in the main, it tends to be how do you recover and re-energize? That's often the difference. So I'm because I'm an introvert, that doesn't mean that I don't like talking to people. And actually, I spend a lot of my time doing workshops and talking to lots of people. But in terms of re-energizing, I want to be by myself. I want to go for a walk by myself. I want to spend time in my own company. The last thing I want to do is go to a party in an evening to re-energize. That would be that would take energy from me to to do that. Whereas somebody like Helen, my co-founder, to to re-energize, she wants to meet new people, be surrounded by people. So that's often more of the difference versus you know c- can you be in a group of people? Can you lead people? I think my experience, and I think this is the same for everybody, is that. Once you find your way of leading, you mm-hmm. are a better leader. Mm-hmm. And so by the time I was leading bigger teams and places like Sainsbury's, which I loved, I loved the corporate world and I was really happy there, which is a very unfashionable thing to say, but very true in my in my experience. I was much more comfortable in my own skin, uh, much more self-aware and, and understood that I didn't need to look and sound like the person that I was working for in order to do a really good job and I think once I figured that out for myself it really helped me so I worked for a couple of incredibly brilliant extrovert leaders and you just sort of go okay well that's their style and their approach and doesn't mean you can't learn from those people um, and doesn't mean they they can't stretch you in new directions but I do I think of us all a bit like a rubber band and I think we all have the capacity to stretch in kind of different directions 
but also we do need some time kind of back in our natural resting place and you can't stretch people so far that they break because that's not good for any of us that's when we burn out that's when we're trying to pretend to be something that we're not and that takes a lot of mental energy and effort and no one is going to be good at leading if if you try and do that and so I think by the time I was leading those teams you know that I I you know you're building your reputation on things that you choose you know what you want people to say about your leadership and the kind of leader that you are and I was really clear that I wanted to be a leader that really cared about their people first and foremost um and that was kind of good at creating new stuff they were probably the two things that I was always known for in kind of a corporate environment was people leadership um you know Mm -hmm. really passionate about that and obviously that's Mm -hmm. kind of led to what I do today but also I always liked the weird and wonderful jobs so maybe the jobs that people had not done before where you had to write your own job spec or create your own team or you needed to do things very differently that was always kind of very appealing to me so you 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 you're attracted to the odd stuff the eccentric the unusual the is, is that right I think I was attracted to um kind of blank spaces blank pieces of paper um which is quite unusual in a corporate environment that did that did make me unusual um because it never worried me if I didn't know the answers um and I I was never kind of fearful of not being smart enough and I was actually I was always good at asking for help and getting the the right kind of support around me and recognizing that I didn't need to be good at everything so Sarah, I've actually, I think I've had a road to Damascus experience already talking to you because, um, you know, you were saying that extrovert, introvert is all about where you recharge, mm-hmm. uh, get, get, you know, you, you re-energize yourself. And if I can share a confidence, because like, there's no one else listening, mm-hmm. it's actually, though I spend a lot of time uh, prancing about in the, in the spotlight, as it were, in the work that I do, afterwards, do not come anywhere near me. I mean, I sit, particularly, you remember those days when we used to fly places? You know, I will fly <laughs> off to and then to come back, and then I would sit down and almost put a mental blanket over my head and be sitting there hoping that I wouldn't bump into anybody from, from the seminar because there was something about needing just to go inside and be unsociable and unconnected that was really, so maybe you've uncovered the inner introvert in me. So I have to go and think about that. Um, well, also most of us are, and I think we should all avoid putting labels yeah. on ourselves or on each other. But absolutely, I think these things are only useful if we use them as a way to understand ourselves and to kind of build better relationships. Um, but also knowing that, you know, there's, there's kind of this phrase of an ambivert. And actually, the majority of people are ambiverts, which means that you are not kind of a full-on extrovert which some people absolutely are like like I say my co-founder is a lot of my best friends actually are and and I'm definitely more introverted but I would be close to an ambivert who you know feels quite comfortable adapting and sometimes your you know your preferences maybe in terms of your work might be different to your preferences in your personal life Mm -hmm. but I think what what you can start to spot is you know how how do you build relationships Mm -hmm. do you enjoy building relationships with kind of lots of different people and meeting people for the first time. Mm. Or I'm somebody often, I sometimes describe my approach to building relationships as a bit limpet-like. I'm sort of like a limpet. (laughs) So once I know someone, I really like getting to know them and I sort of hold on tight 
and they can kind of never let go of me. So I'm still friends, whether they would describe me as a friend or not, but basically I've limp, I've limpeted on with <laughs> most of my previous managers with lots of people that I've, that have been in my teams in the past, people that I've worked with or people perhaps who've worked for me. Um, and that for me works brilliantly because that's kind of deep kind of quality connections. Mm. Um, and I think that's really also supported me in my career. When we talk about squiggly careers, you never quite know where you're going to go next. I think one thing that you can control and hold on to is the relationships that you build, the people you surround yourself with, the people you learn from and learn with. And if you just said to me, oh, that's networking, networking was a real barrier for me because I thought, well, I don't want to turn up at something where I don't know anyone. And I'd spent loads of time thinking I should, but I didn't really want to. But as soon as I reframed kind of relationships and networking is just people helping people that's how kind of we define it and started to see it as well actually just do it in your own way you don't need to do it in a way that doesn't work for you and you can just start with giving and not worry too much about gaining that I think was really actually transformational for me in terms of again my career and being able to work and do the sorts of roles that I was really interested in Ah, the squiggly Sarah Ellis. Marvellous, marvellous stuff. I love how Sarah takes that concept, networking, which I think for many of us makes our skin crawl and turns it into something really nice and simple and powerful. People helping people. I must remember that. It's brilliant. I also love the way she and her co-founder Helen at Squiggly Careers at Amazing If um, have taken this idea of squiggliness and made it okay. It's okay that life has its ups and downs, its twists and turns. In fact, anything worthwhile is going to have its twists and its turns. That's something they didn't tell us in our very sort of linear education. So entrepreneurs know all about twists and turns. Uh, They have ideas, they develop products, they test them on the market, then they discover they need to turn into something else. It's a very iterative, malleable, creative process. And someone who knows a lot about it is my next guest, Deborah Coughlin. Debs is a, a producer, a writer, a broadcaster, and uh, most recently an entrepreneur in the mental wellness space. Here she is talking about Wakey TV, which is her latest product and how it might have to change. And in the course of the conversation here, you'll hear that both Deborah and I have had our own personal first-hand experiences of mental unwellness. We talk a little bit about the effect that it's, that it's had on us. Yeah, so um, I've got this company, Method X Studios, and we want to democratise mental health. Lots of people are trying to crack this problem. Um, And of course, we think we've got the best team to do it in the most exciting, brilliant way. Um, And um, we had a product out last year called Wakey, which was brilliant. It, It beat all kind of benchmarks that we were going for, but it wasn't quite right. So we've gone back into R&D to see whether, well, we might end up fixing Wakey or we might come out with a whole plethora of other things. And that's what's really exciting about the research and development stage to me is that, you know, it's the promise, isn't it? Like anything is possible. I just want to go back to something that we said and we high-fived each other just to be just to, to, to honour it for a moment, which is both you and I, by the sound of it, had, had, our, had mental... Uh, distress in in our 20s 
I find looking back, I was lucky to have bumped into some good people and had some good advice and, and was nudged on a good way. And I know that that's not always the case. But for me, that has been a bit of an engine of my creativity. It's kind of there at the back of my mind. It, I kind of remember what it was like wandering about the streets. And, and I, I, I don't know if it's, if it's made me more compassionate, but I kind of, it's certainly made, it's, hum, it's a bit humbling. And also, you know, I, I know what the, I mean, I feel really happy now, but I know what the opposite feels like. Mm. You know, is there any way in which it changed you for the better, would you say, your experiences? Did it change you? Oh, God, yeah. I mean, the whole thing was a massive change that needed to happen. Um, and it could have gone one of a few different ways. And it was by chance that I got better. This book was part of that. Being given that book mm. was part of that chance. Although, of course, it was my brain that took the meaning out of that, you know, that it needed to. Um, but, yeah, when you're signing on slash being signed off sick, dealing with debt collectors, your PPI doesn't pay out because that turned out to be a load of rubbish. Mm. Mm, mm, um, mm. So an incredible amount of debt um, and very anxious and self-medicating with everything that you can get your hands on. And it's just getting worse and worse and worse. And and the doctor, my parents didn't know how to help me because they didn't really acknowledge at the time that mental health was even a thing. You know, my dad had grown up in poverty. And so, you know, if, if you've got, if you've got shoes, <laughs> like you're you're fine basically get a grip my dad used to say you, you but you basically have the diseases you can afford yeah so if you're you know if you're if, if you don't have much money you've got a cold if you've got loads of money it's incipient pneumonia you know <laughs> <laughs> that was a bit that was a bit of the attitude although since they've become much more um yeah understanding but yeah, they didn't know what to do. And I kept going to the doctor. They didn't know what to do. CB, you know, the things they could offer me didn't didn't work for me. They weren't the right things. They're just the most cost-effective things. Um, mm -hmm. And so, yeah, completely um, set me on a path that I think is a really rich path because I, you know, understand how things can unravel I don't know. There's also a bad side to that because I think it can make you a little bit too vigilant about unraveling again sometimes mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. once you know what's possible. But, um, mm. but at the same time, yeah, it's, um, it changed me for sure. I can't mm. even really express how much, but yeah, it changed mm. me. Mm. Great conversation, Debs. Um, and in case anyone's interested, the book she referred to in passing is The Golden Notebook, which is a novel by Doris Lessing, which had a big impact on Debs at the time, and she recommends we all read. So, Pippa, Philip, Sarah, Deborah, all very different people, but in my view, they're all people who are evolving. They don't see themselves as the finished product. They're they're driven to sort of reinvent themselves, seek new thems, as it were. And that's definitely true of my final guest for this omnibus edition, Ruby Rare. Ruby Rare. She's, um, she's known as an 
expert in sex education. Uh, she's an author. She's a champion of the body positive movement. She's multicolored. She's opulescent, if such a word exists. And above all, she's curious. Especially when it's stuff that I think about a lot and talk about quite a lot it's really easy for me to forget to say like oh and by the way I am also doing this I'm not I'm not for a second like pretending to myself or anyone else that I'm a finished product or that I've like you know I've completed this but it's for me like I, I speak to loads of people whether it's about bodies or about aspects of sex where everyone is taking things really, really seriously. And there are lots of things that need to be taken really seriously, but there are also lots of things that if they were looked at with a little bit more kindness and held a little bit lighter and looser, I think would feel different. And that's, I, I, I'm, I'm wary of saying it like that because I don't want to belittle the really serious stuff. But yeah. for me, it was like, okay, I could suck my tummy in all the time and feel like my relationship with my stomach is owning me and limiting what I can do. Or I could just look down at it and like get it nice and warm in the sun and give it a happy little pat and a squeeze and be like, oh, you're all right. Okay, come on then. Let's let's go and do this thing. Let's go and put that dress on, you know? And and that, I don't know, it, just, it makes me really happy thinking and like acting like that. And that communicates, I have to say, there's an incredibly refreshing and rare a lightness about what is clearly a, 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 a serious is an overused word. I had a friend, Ken Campbell, who I often quote him, but it, it, it's such a brilliant phrase. He said, this is far too important to take seriously. And there's that <laughs> sense of... I love that. Sex is... Because the idea that being serious about something helps you, helps you change it, I think is erroneous. If you get serious about things and believe me, I do, it, they become harder to shift. You seem to have this silliness, this inspire, it's, it's so underrated, um, playfulness, that there's a, there's a part of your book, I think, where you talk about your sex face. And you, know, it's just like, you said, I don't think you should pretend you're on camera, but you know what, could you just lighten up? It's not, <laughs> you know, this idea. Yeah. And, and I, I think... remember sleeping with people in my like earlier 20s, and a couple of people sort of being surprised that I was smiling. And that just felt like a weird thing. Like, do you not want me to smile? I mean, yeah. don't get, I wasn't like beaming, but I, I think a lot of the time, because of the images of sex that we see, it's people think that they need to go into it like it's some kind of like serious, dramatic performance when actually like it's play, it's playing. And laughter and smiling when they are coming up naturally should be really welcome in that space. Yeah. There's lots of, I mean, there's lots of sparks going off in my head in relation to what I spent a lot of time thinking of about, which is this wonderful, this, you know, this street wisdom, this, this nonprofit that we run. And uh, a lot of that was put together intuitively and by sort of trial and error in a way. But, but it's interesting for me that quite a few of the things that we encourage people to do are consistent with what you're talking about. So that playfulness, I think, is part of what we're interested in. And also seeing the beauty in everything is one of the tune-ups that we do. That kind of, as you say, laying that kind of kind eye on the world around you rather than seeing it as something brutal and brittle and out to trap us. 
Is that something you remember? Is that something you've learned? Or is that something that you think is innately you? I think once you just open yourself up to seeing the beauty in unexpected places, you're then opening yourself up to seeing other people's version of that as well, which is nice. So it's not something that stops growing at any point, which I'm very happy with. It's nice to just be like yeah. at the beginning of seeing that and seeing how it develops throughout my life. I definitely, I I write all the stuff I put out into the world. One of the really core aims of that is always that it's, it's, it's kind of aimed at anyone. It is accessible to anyone. And I'm not just speaking to a particular group of people. Well, and it doesn't need to be me because I might not be the best placed person to do that, but it's just the more people who are like peeking behind that barrier and you know parting it like a little curtain just being like oh what would happen if this bit just got pushed to one side and I'm like you know being playful and pleasure focused in the way that we address this kind of stuff not just I'm obviously interested in everyone having you know, a really lovely, pleasurable time when it comes to sex. But I also want the process of talking about this and exploring about it to be pleasurable and enjoyable when it can be as well. Because, yeah, I just, it feels like a weird, like uh, a very <laughs> childish thing to just be like, I just want everyone to have a really nice time, whatever they're doing. Wow. <laughs> have fun. Like if, you know, if I'm thinking about a task, it's like, how can this be fun? How can I make this enjoyable for myself, for anyone else? And that stood me in really good stead. So, my fellow wanderers, wanderistas, wanderellas, wanderians all, that's nearly it for our omnibus meander together. I hope you'll join us soon because there's a second season of Wonderful that is currently wending its way towards us through the crooked path of life. But for now, you guessed it, yes. Let's take this one out with a song. Oh, what a beauty. I've never seen one as big as that before. Oh, what a whopper. It must be two foot long or even more. It's such a lovely colour, all long and green and fat. I never thought a mara could grow as big as that. Oh, what a beauty. I've never seen one as big as that before. Here we go. We're done. Our work on earth is done. I think that's it. If you want to find out more about how you can use these techniques to find clarity and navigate your life, then check out streetwisdom.org. Street Wisdom is a non-profit founded by David Pearl and is in 67 countries around the world. It's a free workshop run by volunteers and its mission is to bring inspiration to every street on earth. If you'd like to get involved, you can join a free workshop or download our audio guide from streetwisdom.org. We'd love for you to share the magic of street wisdom, so please do tell a friend. And you can give us a follow on Instagram and Facebook at streetwisdom underscore. And if you'd like a copy of Wonderful, you can find it on Amazon in book and Kindle form. All profits will go to Street Wisdom. Wonderful is a Pearl Group production. You can find David on social media 
at David Pearl here or his website, davidpearl.net. Let's wander and ponder.